Our Father, these are sobering words. The language is shocking, and the truths spoken of by the Lord Jesus here are intended to cause us to sit up and take note. But Lord, in these verses, there is the potential to unlock wonderful treasures of grace. For grace is never seen, never experienced as fully as when it is seen and understood alongside sin. Light is blinding in intensity. When you come into light out of darkness, the more intense the darkness, the more intense the light. Pitch black to the brilliant light of the gospel. Lord, help us all to sit up and listen, and by your Holy Spirit, plant these truths deep within our souls for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, these are, as I prayed, very, very strong words from the Lord Jesus. It is a shocking passage of Scripture. It is frightening teaching from the Lord Jesus. It is meant to shock. It is meant to frighten us. And let's not gloss over or caveat or qualify or explain these verses away. Or let's not move quickly on. These shocking words are meant, as I pray, to cause us to sit up, take note, and listen intently, to understand for our good. And let me promise you, promise you because Jesus promises us, and promise you in a very practical and mundane way because of the impact of these verses on my own life over this past week. Let me promise you that these verses will unlock wonderful treasures of grace in your life. And that is no preacher's spin or words to hook you in and to get you to go with me through these challenging verses. That is an honest, heartfelt plea to you to allow these verses to do in your life what they have done in mine. For grace is never seen. Grace is never felt. Grace is never experienced 
as fully as when it is seen and understood alongside sin. And that is as true, if not more needed, when the years pass in the Christian life. When you come out of a dark room, a pitch black room, into light, the light is blinding in its intensity. Coming to terms with the blackness of sin is so important, and thereby coming to terms with the brilliant light of grace. Now, Jesus' subject is sin and how serious it is. First, he teaches us in these words that sin is all-pervasive in our lives. He speaks about our hands, our feet, and our eyes. He speaks about what we do, where we go, what we look at. Just a simple way of saying that sin affects every part of who we are. No, I don't think I need to persuade us that that is true. Our sinful nature is all pervasive. There is no part of us, there is no part of who we are that is unaffected by sin. And that is because sin comes from our hearts, from within, from our inner being, from our human nature. Listen to these words from Jesus earlier in Mark's gospel. If you have a Bible, just flick back a few pages to Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Mark 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That list is all pervasive. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Back to Mark 9, our hands, our feet, our eyes, what we do, where we go, what we see, all that defiles comes from within, from our fallen sinful human nature. It is our nature that controls our hands. It is our nature that controls our feet. It is our nature that prompts us to look with our eyes. The sinful nature we are born with. And it's very important we are clear on that. We are born sinful. The Bible is quite clear about that. And the evidence is quite clear. No one teaches us to sin. 
It's not cultural. It's not a societal environment that teaches us to sin. We just do it. We can't help it. We cannot stop ourselves. Now, yes, humanity bears the image of God still. Fallen, sinful humanity still bears the image of God, but that image has been shattered like a mirror cracked, a distorted image, a broken image, a shattered image. Sin is serious. It is all pervasive. It affects everything in our lives, and it comes from within our sinful nature, our sinful soul, our sinful self. It is fundamental to who we are as humans. Now, sin, Jesus teaches us in these verses, is not only serious in that it is all pervasive coming from our fundamental human natures from within. Sin is serious, deadly serious, in another respect. Jesus says sin sends us to hell. Now, that is shocking but it's exactly what Jesus is saying. There are, I think, 12 clear and direct references to hell or passages of hell in the New Testament. Eleven from Jesus' teaching. Hell is no apostolic doctrine Hell is not something the apostles or the early church added or built on the teaching of Jesus. It is at the very heart of what Jesus taught. Sin sends us to hell. Now, here is a good illustration of why it is so important that we live in light of what God's Word says. I want to ask you if, if you're not a Christian, and I want to ask you if you are a Christian, is this or is this not what Jesus says? Read with me. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is quite clear 
that unless sin is dealt with in our life, our destiny is eternal hell, eternal life in hell. A place Jesus describes as the unquenchable fire, a fire that never goes out because what it burns is never burned up, never consumed. Hell, Jesus says, is the unquenchable fire, verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is quoting from the very end here of the prophecy of Isaiah. The final chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 66, is about the final judgment when Jesus returns in glory at the end of the world. Let me read to you from Isaiah 66. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword will all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Who will be spared the judgment of the Lord? The righteous, those whose sin has been dealt with, they will live for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth that the Lord will make. Who will not be spared the judgment of the Lord? The unrighteous, those whose sin has not been dealt with. They will live for eternity in hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Their bodies will rot and be consumed by worms, but they will never die, and the fire will never go out. So what is Jesus saying to all humanity? Sin is deadly serious. The sin that pervades every part of you, the sin that is fundamental to your nature, will send you to hell unless it is dealt with. That is what the Lord Jesus is saying. Just let me invite you to pause, and if you know Mark's gospel, reflect on who Jesus is to say these things. If you don't know Mark's gospel, maybe you're new to Christian things, read the evidence for who Jesus is to say these things. He is no mere man. He is no mere moral example. He is no mere great teacher. 
He is the eternal Son of God. Who stood in a boat and stilled a storm. Who took a man whose life was lived among tombs in his madness and rendered him sane. He took a little girl's hand and raised her from the dead. He fed multitudes out of nothing. Evidence that he is the eternal Son of God. Jesus says to all humanity, sin is deadly serious. Unless it is dealt with, it will send you to hell. And therein is the state, the plight, the destiny of all humanity. So what are we to do? Are we to cut off our hands? Are we to cut off our feet? Are we to pluck out our eyes? If I have no hands and feet or eyes, will I still sin? Yes. So what are we to do? Are we to tear out our hearts? Tear out our minds? Tear out our souls? Is Jesus not asking us to do something that is both necessary and impossible? In a few weeks' time, we'll come to Mark's account in chapter 10 of the rich young man, a man whom Jesus loved and of whom Jesus asked everything. Jesus said to him, if you want to inherit eternal life, you must be prepared to give away everything you possess in this life for me and for the gospel. It is an impossible bar, Jesus said. Let me read to you from that account in Mark chapter 10. Jesus said to them, his disciples, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I just uh, was struck when I was reading that, that I wonder if we just give the impression sometimes it's easy to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is impossible, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished, and they said to Jesus, I mean, these words are inspired for our benefit. They said to Jesus, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. 
for all things are possible with God. And what Mark is teaching, that getting right with God is impossible for us to do. Getting right with God, which means being saved from eternal hell and sin being dealt with, is impossible for us to do, but possible for God to do. And as human beings, we must come to terms with the fact that one, Our sin will send us to hell unless it is dealt with. Two, dealing with sin ourselves is impossible. It will never be enough. What we do to make us right with God, for we cannot change our nature by ourselves, it is impossible. Three, what we cannot do, God can do and has done in Jesus' death and will do for you if you believe in him. How can God and Jesus deal with sin that we will not go to hell by giving his life, Jesus' life, as a ransom. A ransom means to pay the price for sin. Jesus dying on a cross, bearing our sin, and bearing the wrath, the judgment of God for our sin. That's what Jesus did for us. To use the language of Mark 9, Jesus took upon himself the fire of hell and quenched that fire. He quenched that fire. He put that fire out for you through his sacrificial death. For you. For who? Jesus gave his life, Mark 10, 45, as a ransom for many. Are you among the many Only those who turn to Jesus for their salvation are among the many. Think of what he did. Dying on his cross. Extinguishing the fire of hell for you. What does he ask you to do? To turn to him. To turn away from a sense that by yourself you can be made right with God. Are you among the many? If you are, your sin has been forgiven, your sin has been dealt with, the fire of hell has been quenched for you. And Jesus' righteousness is now your status in the sight of God. God looks at you as you sit in your home. God looks at you and he sees someone 
who has been made righteous through Jesus. He sees you as he sees his son. More than that, he sees you as his son or daughter. You have been declared by Almighty God as righteous. Why and how? Because God's judgment, his eternal hell for your sin, has been quenched. The fire is out. Therefore, God cannot but declare you righteous. And your inheritance is everlasting life in the glory of the new creation. Now, do you see how wonderful this shocking passage is? If God opens your eyes, and he needs his divine revelation for us to see the seriousness of sin, the unquenchable fire of hell, the impossibility of ourselves dealing with sin, an eternal hell where our bodies rot and are eaten by worms and the fire never goes out and we never die. That's the language Jesus uses. If that leads us to Jesus and his grace and mercy in taking our sin upon himself and quenching the fire of hell and giving us his righteousness in looking at us and saying, you are my child, you are my son, at that moment pitch black yields to brilliant light abject fear yields to profound assurance. Lost yields to found. Eternal hell yields to eternal life with Jesus. Let me quote from an old hymn, and I'm going to paraphrase what it means. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, the Lord is my righteousness, was nothing to me. Here's a paraphrase. There was a time in my life when I had no idea of the terrible danger I was in. I had Christian friends. I had Christians in my family who spoke to me about Jesus dying on the cross for them so their sins could be forgiven, and they were sincere and earnest about that. They really do believe that Jesus' righteousness is now theirs. But for years it meant nothing to me. Here's the second verse. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple page. But even when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, the Lord is my righteousness, seemed nothing to me. In other words, I enjoyed reading the Bible. I enjoyed listening to sermons. The beautiful words of Isaiah that moved my soul at Christmas, for to us a child is born. Comfort 
comfort my people. I loved Handel's Messiah. I loved listening to it. The majesty of John's gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I do not give to you as the world gives peace. And even the moving descriptions of Jesus' death, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, forsaken by God so we could be forgiven. But I never saw, I never understood that the Lord Jesus is my righteousness. And sometimes I even cried, so moved I was by these words, like tears. McChain writes in his hymn, from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. The Lord is my righteousness, was nothing to me. And then there came a time or a season in my life and often it is a process, not an instant. When God opened my eyes to see, I was woken up to reality. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fear shook me, I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. The Lord is my righteousness, my Savior must be. We talk of repentance, that is turning from self to Jesus for salvation. And part of repentance is being convicted of the seriousness of sin and its consequences. It is a terrible thought to realize that your eternal destiny is hell. That awareness, though, is necessary. It is the conviction of sin and of judgment. As the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and of judgment, the Spirit convicts us of the righteousness that is offered to us in Jesus. And so our souls begin to sing, the Lord is my righteousness, my Savior must be. And let me promise you, if you are at a decision point in your life, that the way this hymn goes on is absolutely true. It is what God, by His Spirit, enables a Christian to believe with all their heart. My terrors all vanished. Not the anxieties and fears of normal life, but the terrors around death and eternal destruction. Before the sweet name of Jesus, my guilty fears banished. With boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. The Lord is my righteousness, is all things to me. And that is the difference between before conversion and after conversion. The Lord is my righteousness, meant nothing to me. And now the Lord is my righteousness, is all things to me. And let me say to you as an ordinary Christian believer, the Lord Jesus, my righteousness, consumes all my life. My treasure, my boast, 
because I can never be lost. My cable, my anchor, my breastplate and shield, and then this, even treading the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath, for while from life's fever or virus or pandemic, my God sets me free. The Lord is my righteousness. My death song shall be. Now that is a great hymn. But wouldn't it be better if Mark were to give us a simple picture, and we're close now to being done. Wouldn't it be great if Mark were to give us a simple picture of what saving faith in Jesus looks like? We get it at the end of chapter 10. One of the model disciples in Mark's gospel, the blind beggar Bartimaeus, not James or John who were looking for glory, not Peter at this point who would not accept Jesus needed to die for him. Here the model disciple is a blind beggar who says two things to Jesus. One, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I cannot save myself. I need salvation, but I cannot save myself. I understand that my salvation is through your death, and I am trembling, Lord Jesus, as to what it would mean if you do not save me. And so I cry to you, have mercy on me. And the second thing, and maybe this is a prayer for somebody listening this morning to pray. Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do? And Bartimaeus says, I want to see, I want to see. And for him, it was physical sight. But the, but the principle here in Mark's gospel is I want to see, I want to understand. Maybe uh, there's a wall between you and Jesus. Maybe you just cannot believe and, and, and faith is a supernatural thing. Why don't you pray to the Lord Jesus? I want to see. I want to see. I want to see. Now, as we close, many of us are hearing this message today as Christians. And we must never tire. We must never tire. How could we ever tire? of being reminded of the seriousness of sin and what God has done for us in Jesus. For grace is never seen, never experienced as fully as when it is seen and understood alongside sin. Light is blinding in intensity when you come into light out of dark. Christian, you stand in the light clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Your inheritance is heaven and not hell. Christ has died and extinguished the fire of hell for your sin. So how will you live from now? What will you do? Well, that's the subject of next Sunday morning and maybe the week after that. I want to 
take time to move from the realm of justification. That means being made right with God and given the status of righteousness. I want to spend time with us as a church family in the realm of sanctification, how we grow as Christians, how we fight and go on fighting with a sin that still indwells us. My strong personal conviction, right or wrong, is that we need to hear and embrace this time as a church family as one of repentance for our ongoing sin as Christians, as churches. I find myself deeply burdened by the seriousness of sin. And with the needs of a season of repentance and renewal, I do not say that lightly. This week I have put it in print and I say it now. And may God rebuke me if that is insincere. What has persuaded me is the encouragement that others across the church family are sensing a similar burden. A verse that is come to mean a great deal to me over the past weeks is Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Think of the joy and the liberation that would come if we can make progress with this verse. Let us throw, every, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. What an encouragement it will be to see in our lives individually the ties and the entanglements of sin that still is there loosen. It will never go until we are with Jesus. But in the power of the Spirit that indwells us, our capacity supernaturally in the inner being of our souls for righteousness. We can make real progress and find real, real joy that we've never, ever known. And we can be useful to God. So could I encourage you? Can I encu and I'm sorry for going on a bit longer today. <laughs> I fully intended to hit 30 minutes. But can I encourage you to prepare your hearts for a season of repentance from sin? A season of spiritual renewal. A season of spiritual transformation. Amen.